0: Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Writing history takes a very long time. Okay, sure, you could write down everything as it happens, but that's really only like writing a diary. You have a record of events, which is fine, but real history, meaningful history, is something much more. To understand what happened in the past, time has to go by so that we can observe the ripples events have had on the world. It's only by examining those ripples that we begin to understand what's happening in the present and what could happen in the future. It's often helpful and convenient to look at the past by decade, certainly a favorite way to do things with music. In fact, that's how we like to categorize music history. If I say 50s music, you know exactly what I mean. If we move to the music of the 1960s, same thing. The names of artists and songs leap to mind, just as they do if I were to say, we're going to talk about the 70s or the 80s. But what about the 1990s? What comes to mind on that branch of music history? Well, uh, grunge, Britpop, raves, electronica, Generation X, the rise of hip-hop, sampling, cell phones, personal computers, the internet, MP3s, music piracy. The 90s were a transformational decade. In so many ways, the end of the way music used to be and the beginning of what it would become in the next millennium. Many people have come to the conclusion that the 90s were the last great decade for music. Now, is that true? Well, now that enough time has passed, we can look back on the 90s to help understand where we are today. And if we're going to be successful at that, We're going to need to spread this investigation out over a lot of shows. These are the 1990s, part one. This is the Ongoing History of New Music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and this is episode one of a multi-part look back on the 1990s, which, in terms of alt-rock, is the most important decade this genre has ever seen. There are many reasons I say that, and in the upcoming weeks, we'll cover off all of them. We're going to start this series off by looking at a number of things we got from the 1990s, things that changed everything going forward. These are foundational concepts, things that aren't necessarily rooted in just music, but had an effect on music then and now. So I've gathered together a bunch of things on which the 1990s were built. We need to start with some demographics. This is point number one. Everything that we're going to talk about over the next whack of shows is all rooted in demographics. In this case, we need to focus on the children of the baby boomers. Demographers call them Generation X, the slacker generation. As the 90s dawned, things did not look good for Gen X. There was a brutal recession. Much of Gen X was overeducated and underemployed. There was a real concern amongst the members of Generation X that they would not be able to achieve a standard of living equal to or better than their parents. They were disillusioned, jaded, angry, and more than a little scared about the future. We had Gulf War No. 1. Saddam Hussein had invaded Kuwait and was threatening to do more damage. But George Bush Sr. and the rest of his coalition waded into the Middle East and stomped him using a lot of young American soldiers, many of them Gen Xers, who could only find work by joining the army. Speaking of presidents, we were into the third consecutive term by a Republican president. George H. W. Bush had followed two terms of Ronald Reagan, a guy who wasn't really popular with young people. If you match up history with politics, you'll see that whenever there's a Republican in the White House, music tends to turn heavier, angrier, and more rocky. Gen X was certainly more than happy to make and listen to this kind of music. Gen X was coming of age musically, too. This demographic group was in that sweet spot, that age range of 15 to 25, the time in our lives when music seems to be one of the most defining things of who we are. Gen X was not interested in what their parents or older brothers and sisters were into. It was especially galling that the late 1980s featured one long parade of classic rock bands in the second acts of their career touring behind albums that no one cared about. Lots of Van Halen, Aerosmith, Leonard Skynyrd, Pink Floyd, and Elton John. Gen X did not buy into any of this music. They wanted music of their own. Music by their own people that dealt with their hopes and dreams and fears and wishes and anger and ambitions. They were also not interested in the pop music that had dominated the latter half of the 80s. New Kids in the Block, Tiffany, Debbie Gibson. That was meaningless, soulless crap didn't make a lot of sense when there was a war and a recession. And they were not interested in the hair metal that had dominated rock for the last couple of years. The excess, the makeup, and the costumes, and the endless stupid power ballads were considered inappropriate, especially, again, in time of war and recession. Gen X came to value authenticity, humbleness, and street cred in their bands. Their stars had to be anti-stars. Traditional trappings of stardom were something to be shunned, avoided, downplayed. Slacker culture, with its strange mix of apathy and egalitarianism, took over. It was supposed to be about the people, about the fans, and about real, honest music. By 1990, this huge group of kids was returning to the punk ethos of the 1970s, where there were no barriers between the performer and the audience. It was music made by regular people, for regular people. You could feel the change was in the air. All it needed was a spark to break things wide open. And that spark ended up coming from an unknown band from Aberdeen, Washington. Nirvana from Nevermind. If there was one album that set off the alternative 90s, it was that one. Now, we'll come back to Nirvana when we look at the whole grunge thing, but remember this for now. It was the 1990s when Generation X took over from the baby boomers when it came to setting the course for rock and roll. The second thing we need to talk about is money. Now, compared to today, the record industry was awash in it. It flowed like water. In the U.S. alone, revenues were $8 billion in 1990, with a trajectory that pointed almost straight up. By the end of the decade, the industry just in America was worth $14 billion. Globally, the industry was on its way to grossing $37 billion. Why so much? Well, the compact disc, for one. As vinyl and pre-recorded cassettes fell out of favor, people began collecting CDs, which were much more expensive and offered higher profit margins for record labels. And not only were people buying CDs, but they were buying discs to replace their old vinyl and cassettes. At the same time, the record industry in many parts of the world phased out the single. In the past, if you wanted just that one song from an artist, you would spend a few bucks on a 7-inch single, or later a CD single. There was even something called a Cassingle single for a while, which was the cassette equivalent of a 7-inch. But by the end of the 1990s, the output of singles cratered. The attitude of the music industry was, what, you want just that one song from the album? Well, too bad, buy the whole record for 20 bucks." And that was another problem for consumers. When the CD was first introduced in the early 1980s, we were told that the price per disc would drop as more manufacturing plants came online. Well, wrong. It wasn't unusual to see CDs retail for above $15 throughout the decade. I remember seeing a copy of Led Zeppelin's fourth album selling for $24.99. This is middle 90s. That's 41 bucks in today's dollars for one normal copy of a multi-platinum CD originally released in 1971 that had long paid off all its costs. That was just, usurious. Now, forget for a moment how exploited music fans felt. What we're focusing on here is how much money was being generated for the industry and how they spent it. This is the best story I have. When Warner Brothers was prepping the release of R.E.M.'s Up album in 1998, they held a listening party in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. Journalists and radio people and music channel personnel were flown in from all over the world just to listen to the record. Of course, all the costs were charged back to R.E.M., but that gives you an idea of the kind of budgets that were available for promotion back then. Those budgets existed because the labels knew that they were going to make a crapload of money from selling CDs. The positive side of all this was that there was money for long-term development of a band. Labels could afford to let a band find its voice through two, three, four, five albums or more, if necessary. If you had a champion at your record label, you didn't have to hit a home run with your first record or be dropped. This was all very important to the rise of alt-rock in the 1990s. There was money to sign bands with all kinds of different sounds and backgrounds, throw it all against the wall, and just see what stuck. A prime example would be Soundgarden. They were allowed to grow into their potential, something that took until the Super Unknown album of 1994, which eventually sold 10 million copies around the world. The 90s were great times for the music industry, financially speaking. Every year, revenues went up. More CDs were sold, and more record stores opened. And not just stores, mega stores, HMV, Tower Records, Virgin Records, big chains like Sam the Record Man, Sam Goody, Camelot, Sunrise, Music World, all of them competing with each other to sell CDs for the record labels. One of the biggest innovations from HMV in the 90s was to provide customers with shopping baskets and shopping carts. That's how many discs people would buy at one shot. HMV had a loyalty card, too. Buy 10 CDs, get the 11th free. And, amazingly, HMV had a return policy. You don't like that CD? No problem. Bring it back for a full refund. These vast rivers of money also allowed for the growth of the music video industry throughout the 1990s. This is foundational point number three. When MTV first signed on in 1981, the record labels were really skeptical. How were short films based on songs going to sell records? But within a year, they were beginning to spend huge amounts of money on music videos because it turned out that they did move merchandise. A lot of it. Music video budgets ballooned The most expensive clip ever shot was Scream by Michael Jackson and Sister Janet, which was released in 1995. Total budget for that one was $7 million back in 1995. Madonna videos routinely broke through the $6 million mark. Meanwhile, the average music video for any band cost at least $250,000, with every single cent being charged back to the artist, recouped from future earnings generated by the song and the album from which it came. But because YouTube didn't exist yet, the only way people got to see music videos was on channels like MTV and Much Music or The Box, or maybe some after-school or late-night music video show. The video channels controlled what we saw, and people sat in front of their TVs for hours and hours and hours, waiting for their favorite video to come up. And when your band's video did make the playlist, there was a good chance that you were gonna blow up. Here's an example. When it came time to create a video for the corn song, Freak on a Leash, director and cartoon guy Todd McFarlane was hired. The result took an aggressive, polarizing new metal song and turned it into a Grammy Award winner. It was so popular that MTV had to retire it permanently from the show Total Request Live. So let's summarize the first three foundational concepts that helped underpin the alternative 90s. The huge demographic bulge of young people known as Generation X who were coming into their coming-of-age musically years. The vast amounts of money flowing through the music industry. And number three, the power of the music video. In a moment, we'll look at some of the technology that also changed everything. Hang on. You're listening to the Ongoing History of New Music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. Welcome back. This is the first part of a deep look at the alternative 90s, and we've started with an examination of some of the decade's foundational conditions and principles. Item number four isn't something that's discussed much by regular folk, but let me explain why it's so important to the rise of alt-rock in the 1990s. This sounds a little bit crazy, but before March 1st, 1991, record labels, bands, managers, and publishers have no idea how many records they sold. That's because there was no ironclad way of tracking sales. For years, decades, sales were tracked by a number of industry publications. Billboard magazine was, and still is, the biggest. Every week since 1945, they'd have a staff call a selection of record stores, a cross-section of record stores across the U.S. Not all, just a representative sample to ask how many records they sold that particular week. If the person at the store didn't know the actual numbers, well, then estimates would be fine. With no way to confirm these numbers, the billboard rep had to take the record store person at their word. Now you can see the problem. With zero accountability, the system was wide open to errors, manipulation, bad memory, bias, bribery, lies, and fraud. Stories of chart fixing go back to the 1930s. And this is important because charts are how the music industry keeps score. Charts also help guide radio stations and video channels on what songs to play and how long to play them. This, in turn, informs fans of what music to buy. It could be very, very corrupt. It was an honor system with, frankly, very little honor. Grease a few minimum-wage-earning record store clerks and suddenly, and inexplicably, an album or a single would start making its way up the charts. So, in other words, what music fans saw on the charts and heard on the radio often wasn't close to reality when it came to actual sales and actual popularity. This led to some, um, let's call them incorrect assumptions, of what genres of music were popular and what genres were not. This all changed in 1991, when the SoundScan system was introduced. This is technology that counts music sales piece by piece, When the barcode is scanned at the cash register, that's counted as a sale. Not before, not after. One record, one transaction, one log sale. No estimates. It was a very hard system to game. The first Billboard chart to incorporate this new sales measurement scheme was published on May 25, 1991. And that chart was vastly different from the one published a week earlier. All kinds of albums suddenly changed positions, Country records, which were thought to be dogs, were actually selling far, far more than anybody realized. Garth Brooks, for example. People were buying a lot more metal than anybody knew. Metallica was a huge beneficiary of this. The old system downplayed rap and hip-hop when those genres were actually selling by the ton. Overnight, N.W.A. had the top album in America. And all those weirdo alternative kids? Turns out that they were buying lots and lots and lots and lots of CDs. Although they resisted the change at first, record labels were soon won over. The new system delivered hard data about who was buying what music and where in the country they were buying it. And here's how the alt-rock of the 1990s benefited. Now that, thanks to SoundScan, labels saw that this weirdo music was actually selling tons of units without much marketing power, how much of this stuff could they sell if they actually sunk some money into properly promoting it? And if this music was selling so well well, they'd better get their talent scouts out there to sign up more of it. The alt-rock gold rush was on. And the catalyst for much of this rush was the new SoundScan technology. This is how we knew that Nevermind was a legit number one album. And it's how Alice in Chains and Soundgarden and Stone Temple Pilots and Pearl Jam all ended up with proper, real number one records. will remind me. Don't call me, daughter. Not fit to be. The kept will remind me. Don't call me Pearl Jam from the Versus album released on October 19, 1993. And because of SoundScan technology, we know that it sold exactly 950,378 copies in the first five days of its release. And if the kids were buying that many alt-rock records, well, then the labels invested more money in alt-rock. The fifth foundational change in the 1990s was the emergence of digital recording and the slow disappearance of magnetic recording tape and old-school editing and overdubbing. Recording studios had been using big reel-to-reel tape machine with huge spools of magnetic recording tape that could be up to two inches wide It was solid technology, worked great, excellent at capturing sound, but it did have its limitations. Digital recording techniques changed all that. Digital machines came first. They were developed by NHK, the national broadcaster of Japan, in 1967. The first digital recordings were also made in Japan in 1971. They still used magnetic tape, but the signal stored on the tape was digital, not analog. More experiments were carried throughout the 1970s, culminating with this, a 1979 album by Rye Cooter called Bot Till You Drop. This seems to be the first all digital album when it comes to recording. Throughout the 1980s, more and more recording studios were equipped with digital gear, but storage was still old-school magnetic tape. However, by 1990, a new beast was appearing in studios, the Digital Audio Workstation. This was a fully digital recording device. Instead of magnetic tape, information was stored on a hard drive. Waveforms could be called up on a screen where they could be edited, modified, and manipulated in ways that were impossible with magnetic tape. This was also the beginning of the era of digital recording software. There were names like Cubase Audio, Studer Diaxis, DEC, Logic, and what's still the most popular of them all, Pro Tools. All these programs and the computers on which they ran allowed musicians, composers, producers, and engineers to explore the universe of audio in unimaginable ways. Now, here's an example of what I'm talking about. Trent Reznor spent hours looking for new songs for what would become the Nine Inch Nails album The Downward Spiral. Now, this is the opening to the big hit Closer. Those sounds began as this the opening to an Iggy Pop song from 1977 called Nightclubbing. It's on his album The Idiot. The beats were made by a really old Roland drum machine. Trent recorded that bit from the Iggy Pop album into his Mac, which was running an early version of Pro Tools. Using the software, he turned the waveform upside down and then treated it with a variety of digital effects, including adding samples of a then-more-modern Roland TR-808 drum machine. Everything was then fed into another Roland machine called the R70. And voila! Sounds that the human ear had never, ever experienced before. We couldn't have we needed digital recording technology to make it possible. Help me, make me Help me from digital recording technology, we need to talk about our sixth foundational change that allowed for the rise of alt-rock in the 1990s, and it's closely related. Sampling. Now, we've already covered that sort of stuff when we went over the construction of that last song. Sampling is when you surgically excise a piece of audio from one source and use it as a building block for a brand new composition. You're reusing, recycling, repurposing a sound for something brand new. Maybe you use it as it is, or maybe you fiddle with it somehow to enhance the effect, or in specific cases, disguise its original source. Like we saw with Closer, it could be something as simple as a drum beat. Or the result might be a Frankenstein monster of stitched together sounds from a host of different places. Now, sampling did not begin in the 1990s. People were experimenting with these deconstructive concepts as far back as at least the 1950s. Jamaican DJs got very good at it in the 1960s. Hip-hop was born out of samples in the 1970s. Beats and grooves manipulated by the fast hands of a DJ with a couple of turntables and a mixer. But it wasn't until the 1980s that we could sample these things electronically with a computer-controlled device. With this technology, old sounds, in the hands of talented musicians and producers, became fresh again. Now, I could cite many examples of how these technologies brought life to alt-rock, but let's begin with this 1992 song from the Beastie Boys album, Check Your Head. The song is Pass the Mic. Where the drum sounds come from is anybody's guess, but we can find Samples of seven songs buried within this track. The first thing we hear is a flute taken from a track called Choir by James Newton, which he recorded in 1982. Ten seconds later, we hear the first of several elements taken from Big Takeover, a song by the legendary punk band Bad Brains. At around the 46 second mark, we hear a bit of So Whatcha Sayin' from the rap group EPMD from 1989. Hey, what then, just a few seconds later, actor and comedian Jimmy Walker intrudes with something from his 1975 album, The Black Prince Has Arrived. Dynomite. That's followed by a bass groove from a song called Big Sur Sweet, a 1974 song by jazz blues player Johnny Hammond. After a quick squawk from a live Jimi Hendrix recording from 1969, we end up at a sample of a 1970 track called I Walk on Gilded Splinters from Johnny Jenkins at around the 3 minute and 15 second mark into the song. On. On the Got all that? Put it all together, add some Beastie Boys on top, and we have this. <laughs> The Beastie Boys, with a fine example of how sampling technology broadened the palette for the sounds of alt-rock in the 1990s. When we come back, a couple more foundational changes that helped shape the world of alt-rock in the 90s. Now, back to the ongoing history of new music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. This is part one of a deep look at the alt-rock of the 1990s. And first, we're going through some significant foundational changes that made the rise of this music possible. We started with demographics and economics, and now we're winding our way through technology. The next foundational change is the personal computer. Before the 1990s, few people had computers in their homes. Okay, you could buy one. Radio Shack had been selling units like their TRS-80 for years. IBM had been in the game since the early 80s. Apple appeared in this space in the late 70s. But as the 90s dawned, personal computers with their clunky DOS interfaces and tiny hard drives were not all that common outside of universities, workplaces, and basements where nerds lived. They were complicated, temperamental, and demanded that you follow a lot of rules. And most of all, they were they were expensive. That began to change in the early 90s, especially after March 1st, 1992, when Microsoft launched version 3.1 of Windows. Earlier versions of Windows had been—I'm uh, going to put this—well, uh, they were pigs, terrible stuff. But with 3.1 Microsoft hit something of a sweet spot. It was their killer operating system that made it far easier for normal people to use a computer. As the 90s progressed, new versions of Windows demanded more powerful hardware. On August 15, 1995, Microsoft launched Windows 95, a brand new operating system that was their most user-friendly creation yet. That brought even more regular people into the world of home computers. Now, this is where it gets a little tricky. To install Windows 95 you needed to use 21 old-school floppy disks. When Windows 98 came along, it needed 38. This was getting stupid, but by then, Microsoft had started shipping software on CD-ROM disks. This meant that all new computers had to have a CD-ROM drive. Somewhere along the line, someone discovered that a computer's CD-ROM drive was just like the compact disc player they had on the shelf. You could use that unit not only to play back music CDs on your computer, but to transfer the digital files from that disc to your computer's hard drive. All you needed was some free software. Now this was getting interesting. It was cool that you could transfer your CD collection into your computer, but it wasn't very practical. Hard drives were still very small and expensive. A single CD contained 640 megabytes of data. In 1995, you were lucky if your computer had a hard drive with just 100 megabytes. But then came this foundational change, our final one, the internet. Now the internet had been around since it was created as a defense department project in the 1960s. But it took until Tim Berners-Lee introduced the idea of the World Wide Web in 1990 that more civilians and non-scientists started to use it. In 1993, Marc Andreessen introduced an easy-to-use browser that he called Mosaic, which later became known as Netscape. But then, a big one. 1995, all restrictions on commercial use of the Internet were dropped. All of the public was allowed in. They were encouraged to come in. And of course, things haven't been the same since. Email, newsletters, websites, wikis, social media, plus file sharing, MP3s, torrents, iPods, iTunes. Over the course of just a few short years, music went from being held secure on pieces of plastic that were sold in stores to running wild all over the planet at the speed of light. Music fans of all stripes were now able to communicate in ways that were totally unimaginable in 1989. Ideas, sounds, trends, fads, concepts, genres, they were all free to spread around the globe. And it all began when Bill Gates demanded that computers come standard with CD-ROM drives so they could install Windows. It's my theory anyway. That's John Vanderslice with a song called Bill Gates Must Die from an album entitled Mass Suicide Occult Figurines. Back with more in a second. More of the ongoing history of new music. The podcast edition with Alan Cross. Let's review these foundational things that were required for alt-rock to take off in the 1990s. First of all, number one, the demographic shift that came with the size and power of Generation X. Number two, the insane amounts of money flowing through the music industry in the 1990s. Number three, the power and reach of the music video. Number four, the introduction of SoundScan, which accurately showed the music industry what kinds of music people were actually into. Number five, the adoption of digital recording technology, followed closely by six sampling, and then we have the personal computer at number seven, and then the widespread adoption of the internet at eight. Now we have all of this established, we can begin to take the 1990s apart. On part two of this series, we will have a look at the powerful women of the 90s alt-rock nation. I'm always available through email at alan at alancross.ca. Got a website called the Things.com, and we can also connect on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Google+. I would love to hear your thoughts on any of this. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast at iTunes and through Google Play.